Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Moods and Modes is made possible by direct support from our Patreon members. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. Here is episode four. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist, I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. I seem to remember that the idea was that this is, this is a... A Peter Green instrumental, right? Whenever you're ready, the machine's running. Chicago, 1969. A hastily thrown together recording session featuring some of that city's locals, who happen to be some of the greatest blues musicians of all time, being put together with a very young band of Brits called Fleetwood Mac. And this is part two of Peter Green, Remembered and Rediscovered, episode four of Moods and Modes. Welcome. 
Now, I normally do the welcome in the middle of the show, but because this episode is a continuation, I'm going to do it up front. First of all, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone who's been spreading the word, leaving ratings online, getting friends to subscribe. It's all very helpful, and it's working. We are in the top 100 in numerous countries now. I've been tracking it. And this is the category of music and music commentary, in which case sometimes we're in the top 10. In Estonia, we went to number two. Huge in Estonia. Who would have thought? So with our high-profile status comes added scrutiny. So the music you're hearing is not Fleetwood Mac Live in Chicago. I would love to play that for you. But just to set the mood, I chose some music of my own. The reason is, given our new high-profile status, it seems better not to tempt fate by stirring the hornet's nest of the gods of copyright and music licensing. However, for you, my awesome listener, I am willing to make a small adjustment in the risk-to-reward calculation and bet that the 15-second rule that applies to Instagram and Facebook and other platforms as imposed by major labels should be okay. I recently had my own run-in with such a corporate monolith on Prince's birthday when I posted a video of myself playing along with the introduction to a song called Wind Doves Cry. I was blocked, then I was blocked again. When I finally got the clip below 15 seconds, it was fine. So I'm gambling on a few things here. Yes, we are on the up and up in the podcast world. That's great. But we're not exactly the serial podcast, the Joe Rogan experience, or Crime Town. Two, I think the music industry has a little bit more to worry about right now. Like a pandemic? And three, if I do happen to share a few seconds of a clip from a recording that I did not create, chances are it's obscure. I won't be sharing you clips of Post Malone rapping about his face tattoo, or Cardi B rapping about her... never mind. No, those are current massive radio hits. The album I'm focused on right now is not something you will hear on the radio. There are no singles. There are no radio edits. In fact, if I had to pick the most unedited album I've ever heard, it may be this album. So it has several names. The one I'm most familiar with is just Blues Jam in Chicago. And it's credited to Fleetwood Mac, Otis Spann, Willie Dixon, Shaky Horton, J.T. Brown, Guitar Buddy, Honey Boy Edwards, and S.P. Leary. Now, incidentally, Guitar Buddy, if you think that sounds like a kid's toy, Mattel presents Guitar Buddy. <laughs> well, maybe he thought it sounded funny as well and changed his name to Buddy Guy, which is how we know him today. Now, I like that version of the album because it just has Blues Jam in giant letters. And then all the other names have equal billing. Fleetwood Mac almost looks like it's a person along with the other guys. There are other versions of this album. There's one that's called Fleetwood Mac in Chicago, and it has a semi-psychedelic logo that you've seen with early Fleetwood Mac, and then featuring in tiny letters all the names of the blues musicians. I think that's kind of lame. So I suggest you, if you pick it up, pick up the one that says Blues Jam in Chicago. There are two volumes 
And uh, again, not only is it unedited, it contains all this great studio dialogue. You could learn how to make an album, or at least find out how albums are made by listening to this. This, this should be required listening for audio engineering schools. So much of it has changed. Yes, obviously the technology has changed. The technology I'm using to speak to you right now is digital. It's a program called Logic. It's common in studios as is Pro Tools, which is even more common in studios. I've used both. I like Logic better. Regardless, while talk of running out of tracks or splicing tape and certain other technicalities have changed, many things have not. I specifically mean the dialogue. Okay, let's do one more take. We're rolling. Let's listen back to that. That type of studio jargon has not changed at all. Same with the talk among musicians. Hey, uh, who? Hey. I'm hip. <laughs> That's the great Willie Dixon. According to a blog about this album that I found online called uh, Many Fantastic Colors, he was kind of like the ensemble leader. And here he is, um, quote unquote, chastising Walter Shaky Horton for missing his cues. Who gave you the cue to cut off? I mean, uh, wait, doesn't matter you the cue. It was long enough, but I mean, uh, I was looking for yeah, Always cue him when the cut off, because this cat goes into the cut off. I'm telling you, I've heard that exact conversation in so many bands. What's the cue? Who's given the cue? How am I supposed to know when to cut off? So I love this stuff. It's not only the music. The music's fantastic, obviously. But it's just such a great document of uh, how records were made. And I like that you can hear the noodling and the warm-ups. It's clearly Peter Green right there. The tuning. Now, the tuning has changed a bit. We have electronic tuners, so you don't hear as much tuning out loud. But that stuff is just so great, and it, none of it's cut out. And I just love that. voice up front definitely sounds like peter green um i'm not sure who he's speaking to that doesn't sound like willie dixon's voice from before but the lick reminds me of a song called you shook me the third track on led zeppelin's debut album which was credited to willie dixon belatedly uh jimmy page i mean what an incredible creative mind not so good about giving credit where credit was due Either way, it's worth noting that Willie Dixon had such a profound impact on rock. Clearly, he was one of Peter Green's biggest influences and influenced Fleetwood Mac, but also Led Zeppelin. And you may know the song Spoonful that Cream did. That spoon, that spoon, that spoonful. That was also a Willie Dixon song. So not only one of the best songwriters in the blues, but also great harmonica player and bass player. He's playing bass on a lot of this album. Now, it may not be obvious to everybody, but the fact that this session was so spontaneous 
and the music so unplanned hangs over this recording now i'm not sure about the details other than we know fleetwood mac was in america on tour and when they went through chicago it seems like they stayed a few days and they got hooked up with chess records chess was the home of the blues and it was one of these operations kind of like fantasy studios in berkeley where you have a recording studio and a record label and this was one of those cases where you had young musicians from Britain that seemed to appreciate American blues more than American audiences did. Now, I'm not trying to take Jimmy Page down a notch. So much respect. But it's hard to ignore the fact that he was not good about giving credit to the great American, and specifically African-American, blues masters, some of whom were still struggling and playing clubs while Page was making millions of dollars. But that was not the case with Peter Green. He went out of his way to acknowledge the masters. And uh, they, in a way, Fleetwood Mac was following the Stones. You know, the Stones had done live appearances with Howlin' Wolf. And it was a nice way of telling their massive audiences, massive white audiences, let's just say it, hey, we would not be here if it weren't for these guys. So it's easy to imagine these tried and true Chicago blues masters with so many nights of smoke-filled, backroom, bourbon-fueled blues gigs under their belts, being a little bit skeptical when in walk these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed Brits. For more on this, let's bring back Dave Rubin, who was with us in episode three. So there's a little story that goes with it. I, I got to, had the uh, pleasure of, of interviewing John McVie on the phone a couple of times. Okay. Uh, when cool. I did a, a Fleetwood Mac book before I did the Peter Green book. So Peter was already sort of in one of the books, but that wasn't all about him. And, and I got to interview him. Uh -huh. And um, I asked him about that. Hey, what, what, what was that like when you guys went to Chicago? You're playing with these Chicago blues men. You know, here are these, you know, these white English guys coming in that situation. And he says, well, he says, you know, at first they were like kind of snickering. Mm. Huh. He said, you know, they were, they, they were, they were kind of some snickery. To, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Yeah. He said, uh, and then he paused, you know, wait for it. He paused, he said, until Peter unloaded on him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he said, <laughs> this is exact word. Oh. When Peter unloaded on him, there was no more snickering. Oh, wow. wow. You got to love it. Yeah guitar method book author Dave Rubin. Now let's return to guitar magazine journalist Andy Aladort. As I'd mentioned in the previous episode, Andy's call was conducted on Zoom audio, so he may sound slightly robotic at times. Just a heads up. Blues Jam in Chicago. I mean, that's a wonderful record because there was that going on at the time, like Michael Bloomfield made, did that record with Mighty Waters. Fathers and Sons, and um, you know, the, the, the younger blues guys in, in the late 60s, early 70s, they were trying to do what they could to shine the light on the original guys. Yeah, that's what Blues Jam Chicago is all about with Fleetwood Mac, yeah. Now here, Andy has an interesting anecdote about Clifford Antone, who is the founder of Austin's Antone's Blues Club which uh, also has an independent record label affiliated. So in addition to playing host for visiting blues artists, everybody from John Lee Hooker to Muddy Waters to B.B. King since the 70s, it's also been an incubator of the local blues scene. 
and Antone was considered a mentor of blues artists, including Stevie Ray Vaughan and his brother Jimmy Vaughan. And Andy happens to be the co-author with Alan Paul of a book, Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Here he is speaking about Clifford Antone. And this is an aside, but Susan Antone told me that her brother, uh, Clifford, Blues Jam in Chicago was his favorite record. And that record, you know, played its part in him wanting to own a car and open a club dedicated to the blues. Because that was his favorite record. Did you catch that? Because of this album, Blues Jam in Chicago or Fleetwood Mac Live in Chicago, depending on which version you get. This album inspires a young man in Austin who will go on to become one of that city's most influential promoters and nurturers of the blues scene there. It's quite remarkable when you think about it. This recording project that was totally thrown together goes up against every rule of the music industry. There's no hit single, there's not even editing, yet it inspires this incredible turn of events in a city that is uh, not exactly next door. Chicago is 1,162 miles away from Austin, according to Google Maps. It will take you 17 hours to get there by car. And guess what, folks? We haven't even yet mentioned the fact that this album, recorded in Chicago with blues masters from that city, and having a seismic impact on Austin, Texas, over a thousand miles away, which will unfold for the next several decades, also included folks from England. Think about this. The blues is like a microcosm of the global cultural melting pot. These cities don't have much in common. London, Austin, Chicago. Yes, they all speak English, but they're so different. The dialects are different. In England, they have tea at four o'clock with scones and biscuits. In Chicago, they chow down on deep dish pizza and giant hoagie sandwiches. In Austin, they consume Tex-Mex cuisines and many cocktails contain a liquor that you can find in Chicago, but maybe not so much in London. Tequila! So you might say that the blues, and specifically blues guitar, takes on a flavor in each of these regions that is a direct parallel to the spoken dialect. So just as people in Austin, Chicago, and London are all speaking English, it doesn't sound exactly the same, yet they can all communicate. The same is true in blues, and you can hear it, specifically with the blues guitar. You could take a guitarist from Texas, say uh, Albert Collins or Stevie Ray Vaughan, and pair him up with a guitarist from Chicago like Buddy Guy or a guitarist from London like Peter Green, and they can all speak the same language. It sounds different, yet it works together. And sure, as we heard a little earlier, there may have been some initial territoriality expressed by some of the older black blues gentlemen when approached by these young English bucks who they weren't used to seeing around. They didn't know how good these guys were. And who could blame them for not yet realizing that these guys were very serious about the music? Which is quite remarkable, because on the one hand, you could simplify it and say, oh yeah, these are just young musicians in London, they just dig the sounds. But when you look at the bigger picture, you know, England is the long-lasting nation that colonized North America 
and created this treacherous African-American experience, the ashes from which a diamond was carved, and it was called the blues. And somehow it spoke to these sons of England. The point here is that these three very different places, Chicago, Austin, and London, who are separated not only geographically, but have very different spoken dialects, different cuisines and customs, they are all inexorably linked by the blues. The original Chicago blues masters probably didn't know it, but their records were lighting sparks in young aspiring musicians across the pond, including Peter Green and his fellow bandmates in Fleetwood Mac. And these young Englishmen spending an afternoon on January 4th, 1969, in the studios of Chess Records with their heroes from Chicago could not have known that they were creating a whole new spark that would light fires elsewhere, including 1,162 miles away in Austin, forever altering the blues scene there. This is the opposite of populism and nationalism. Nobody said, they're coming for our blues, man. We gotta protect our heritage. Nope. No walls, proverbial or otherwise. The takeaway here, we can all learn a lot from the blues. Mike Zito doing Downbound Train by Chuck Berry. Now, Mike was a guest on episode three. We had a great talk on Peter Green. We didn't get that much extra material, so instead I'm going to play some of his music. By the way, this is special guest soloist Alex Skolnick. keeps going. Boy, he really let me go crazy there. Thanks, Mike. To hear the rest of it, pick up the album, which I highly recommend. Rock and Roll, A Tribute to Chuck Berry by Mike Zito. 
and Mike's a great player himself and for this album he really opened it up kind of took a back seat as far as soloing was more of a producer for his guests I can't believe some of the folks who were on here uh, Charlie Berry the third relative of Chuck Joanna Connor Walter Trout Joe Bonamassa Andrews Osborne Robin Ford Eric Gales I could go on and on what are you waiting for push stop right now and get this damn record so I'm able to play this long form because Mike is not only the musician, he is the record label owner. This came out on his very own Gulf Coast Records. So for this reason, I'm able to go beyond the 15 seconds, which we actually didn't discuss. I'm assuming it's okay. Mike, don't come after me, man. <laughs> so normally we take a break midway. That was our break. We did the hellos and housekeeping, etc. up front. And since there is a bit more talking in this episode, it felt like we needed a nice dose of music. And it seemed like a nice way to bring back Mike, who was such a big part of episode three, thank you very much, and for whom Peter Green was an especially big influence as a musician. So getting back to Peter Green, in the last episode, we focused quite a bit on some of the unfortunate circumstances in his life, particularly the period after leaving Fleetwood Mac, when he not only left the music industry, but basically withdrew from society, eventually spending time in a psychiatric hospital, but gradually finding his way back for the most part. So for this episode, I'd like to keep things a little lighter, focus more on the music, especially the blues. And I want to share with you a little clip that got cut out of episode three, partially because it was early in the episode. It felt a little inappropriate given where things were going and partially because we just had so much material. Uh, we ran over an hour. My voice will probably sound a little different because of the air conditioning, which changes my tone and the noise level. It was very hot that day. Thankfully, these past few days, it's been much better. So this episode probably sounds better overall. And as long as we're talking about the intersection of music and global cultures, this seems to fit the discussion. It was uh, some thoughts I had after speaking with our first guest, uh, Dave Rubin. So keep in mind that Peter Green was born Peter Allen Greenbaum, and his father had changed their name to Green. This was a way to avoid the rising tide of anti-Semitism that was happening in the part of London where they were. And it got me thinking, I'd made a comment to Dave, something about, you know, Mike Bloomfield and the fact that uh, Peter Green's real name was Greenbaum, Bloomfield and Greenbaum. <laughs> and it, it got me thinking further about um, Jewish names. So uh, here is me in an outtake from the previous episode. You know, another name that's kind of in line with Peter Green is uh, Mike Bloomfield. He's like the American version. A guitarist you find out about once you become uh, more of a connoisseur of blues guitarists, but somebody who didn't change his name, uh, Bloomfield, right? In this case, Peter Green's father changed his name, but he, he might have done the same thing, you know, like a, a lot of artists do. I, I have a friend, Steph Birnbaum. He changed his name to Steph Burns. He's a great guitarist who played for Alice Cooper and currently plays for an Italian superstar, Basco Rossi. Uh, the guys in KISS changed their names. Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons were not their original names. Um, my friend Marty Friedman <laughs> and I never changed our names. And we used to have this joke, you know, Skolnick and Friedman. We sound more like our own accounting firm than a couple guitar players. <laughs> and I was telling Dave Rubin the same thing. Bloomfield and Greenbaum. 
Had his name been Alan Greenbaum, it would have sounded very different. Get me Alan Greenbaum! But I digress. Back to Tom Cole's written feature on NPR.org. <clears throat> and back to me recording episode four of Moods and Modes. Those were just a few thoughts I had on the subject of Jewish names and musicians. I have some more. I'll save those for another time. I'd like to talk about another name that happens to be another member of the tribe, but unrelated to those thoughts. Uh, the name is Bob Lefsitz. Some musicians may be aware of him. He's probably the most widely read person in the music business. He's like a pundit commentator who sends out a newsletter. He also has a podcast. His podcast is very good. I recommend a recent episode he did with producer Bob Ezrin. So Bob Lefsitz tends to be unflinchingly honest. And what is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. And uh, you may not agree with him on everything. I certainly don't. I agree with him on more than I don't, though, and I greatly enjoy his newsletter. One of the things I enjoy about it is uh, every time there's a great loss in the music world, he tends to do... Uh, tribute and most of them are very good and very informative he also shares responses he does a mailbag and i've been included in there a couple times responding and his response the response to his peter green tribute was really good so if you want to read his his tribute which is recommended go to leftsets.com l-e-f-s-e-t-z.com and you can also sign up for the newsletter now the mailbag responses only come through his email newsletter, so you'll have to sign up. So the reason I'm bringing up Bob Lefsitz, in addition to the fact that some of you might be interested in following him, if you're not already, is that the responses to his Peter Green tribute newsletter were really interesting. I'd like to share a few of those right now. So the very first one says, um, as a guitar player, Peter, Peter Green, Green is, is my, my biggest, biggest influence. influence. I think I might have every record bootleg live recording I started listening to Fleetwood Mac when I was in the fifth grade, about the same time I discovered B.B. King. I read some articles and found out Peter was Jewish, real name Peter Greenbaum, kind of an outsider like me, made me think maybe I could do it too. I think Peter was the absolute best of the British blues guys. I may sound like I'm going overboard, but his singing and guitar playing have always been and will always be part of my life. I spend a lot of time in the studio and I'm always trying to channel his vibe. If I'm playing a solo and get stuck or start to overplay, I think, what would Peter Green play? He was a master of economy. Seriously. Unquote. And it's me again. It goes on for a little bit longer and touches upon some points that were covered in episode three, such as the fact that Peter was so unassuming that he not only didn't want his name to be a part of the band, Fleetwood Mac, he uh, insisted on bringing in fellow guitar players and singers rather than standing out, kind of putting himself in a blender, not wanting too much attention. But as uh, this letter says, uh, this is exactly how I feel, and I'm going to read from it again. Uh, quote, you have to go deep and search out the cuts featuring Peter. Same with the live recordings. 
The Boston Tea Party is a good place to start. Again, not every cut is good, but the ones featuring Peter are stunning. His playing is just the deepest well. Some musicians are really good at imitating the real thing. Peter was the real thing. He may have passed on, but his music lives. Unquote. So the name on that is Kenny Greenberg. I'm not familiar with that name, but I look him up online, and it turns out that uh, he has played on albums by Pam Tillis, Alison Moore, Joan Baez, Toby Keith, Jewel, Willie Nelson, Taylor Swift, <laughs> which is kind of interesting because um, Taylor Swift actually wrote a song about Bob Lefsitz after he critiqued her in one of his newsletters. Which brings us back to the Lefsitz newsletter. Well, already, thanks to the Lefsitz letter, I know about Kenny Greenberg, who seems to be a very uh, successful guitarist in Nashville and was even the 2012 Academy of Country Music Guitarist of the Year. I'd like to know more about him. I will find out. And that's just the first reply to Bob Lefsitz's Peter Green tribute. The second one, I'm going to read this exact. It seems like it was written in, by somebody in a hurry. So I'm going to read it with the mistakes, and then I'll tell you what the... It's very short. <laughs> then I'll tell you what I think the mistakes are supposed to be. My first every album was Mr. Wonderful, a great gatefold sleeve of a very tall Mick Fleetwood. But you didn't mention a superb song called Man of the World. I think the follow-up up Albatross. Classic. <laughs> That's by Steve Lillywhite. I'll explain who that is in a moment, in case you don't know. But I think what he's trying to say is, my first ever album. Not my first every album. <laughs> and um, I think the follow-up of, of Albatross, not up Albatross. <laughs> okay, clearly this guy's in a big hurry. Um, I'll explain what's going on here. Steve Lillywhite is probably best known for producing U2, the first several albums, and co-producing The Joshua Tree, more recently The Dave Matthews Band, The Killers. I think he worked with Rush at one point, also Peter Gabriel, Fish, uh, The Rolling Stones. You, you get the idea. And that's just the second reply to Lefsitz's Peter Green tribute in the mailbag. Not all of them are as prominent, but uh, and there's too many to read. Uh, and, but there's some really great ones here. And the diversity is really interesting, from session musicians to Steve Lillywhite. I'd like to read one more, and this is a really good one, so I'm going to read the whole thing. I was deeply saddened today to learn of the passing of Peter Green, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, blues guitarists in history. I first became aware of Peter when I became a partner in Mike Vernon's Blue Horizon label. Peter Green had co-founded Fleetwood Mac with Mick Fleetwood, and even at this early stage, one could see Peter's unique and expansive skills as a guitarist. The recordings by Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac were produced by Mike Vernon for Blue Horizon. Vernon was a great talent himself, who also produced early recordings by John Mayle, again featuring Peter Green, Eric Clapton, and David Bowie's first album, all for British Decca. I first saw Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac perform at Cook's Clique in West Hempstead, a club around the corner from Decca Studios. As I said in my autobiography, Peter Green had more soul, magic, and creativity than any of the other English bluesmen. As a partner in charge of North American releases for Blue Horizon, and later as the owner of the label, I was proud to have been involved in the releases of both the early Fleetwood Mac albums, Fleetwood Mac and Mr. Wonderful 
recorded with Peter Green, and of course the compilation of singles, The Pious Bird of Good Omens, which included the all-time classic Albatross, which is still a favorite to this day. I was so proud to have Peter Green sit at my table when Fleetwood Mac were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We reminisced about the early days of the band. It was a most memorable evening. I'm so sorry to learn of Peter Green's passing. To my ears, the greatest blues guitarist ever. That's the founder of Sire Records, Seymour Stein, best known for signing groups including The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, The Replacements, The Talking Heads, Ramones, and most famously, Madonna. Now, I mean this in all due respect, but if you had to pick a batch of popular music that had as little to do with blues rock guitar as possible, it would probably be those acts. Yet there you have it. The man who brought all that music to the world, just singing the praises of Peter Green. And so heartfelt. What, what a beautiful letter. So I was quite surprised when I came, I stumbled upon this one section of the Peter Green documentary called Peter Green, Man of the World. Uh, we talked about it in episode three, in which uh, the manager of Fleetwood Mac is describing an encounter with Seymour Stein during the group's first tour of America. There weren't many dates on the tour. It was just a sort of put-your-toe-in-the-water type tour, was the truth. At that time, uh, Blue Horizon in the States was run by a chap called Seymour Stein. You know, I'd been to see Seymour in New York, and, and he just wouldn't give us any money. Ouch! I don't want to hear that. <laughs> That's Clifford Adams, the former manager of Fleetwood Mac. That's followed by an interview with Mick Fleetwood, where he describes the tour as basically living on Dunkin' Donuts. Who knows what happened? Maybe he couldn't give them the money. After all, that wasn't Sire. That wasn't the label he founded. Maybe his bosses wouldn't let him. You know, I'm inclined to defend him because that heartfelt, beautiful letter is just, um, it stands on its own. So who knows? People are complex, and who knows what the real story is? I just want to add the final reply to Bob Blefsitz's Peter Green tribute. Uh, hi, Bob. Geldof here. R.E. Peter Green. Completely agree. What a player. What a voice. What a writer. And sadly, what a story. Hope you and Mrs. stay well and safe. So Bob Geldof, that's probably a name you know. If not, Google it. And I'll just mention one more name of the uh, unexpected appreciators of Peter Green, and that's uh, Noel Gallagher of Oasis, who also appears in the documentary. I read somewhere that, you know, to play the blues, you have to have the blues, right? Not that I'm an expert on that in any way, but that kind of really stuck with me that you never think of Jimmy Page having the blues or Eric Clapton having the blues, but Peter Green did, you know what I mean? He was a bit of a troubled soul, wasn't he? For anyone who's having trouble understanding Noel's thick Manchester accent, He's saying, uh, you know, not that he's an expert on playing the blues, but, you, you know, you don't really think of Jimmy Page having the blues or Eric Clapton having the blues in the same way as you think of Peter Green having the blues. He was a real troubled soul, wasn't he? Noel is somebody who famously went through his own drama with his own band, with his own brother, Liam Gallagher, at a much later time, very different era, different situation. But he knows a little bit about troubled souls. 
And he goes on to describe the deep connection he feels with Peter Green as an artist. Not so much in the sense of blues guitar playing, which he admits he doesn't know that much about. Uh, not that he doesn't respect it. But he uh, senses the emotion and anguish in the lyrics and uh, relates to Peter more in the sense of uh, being a songwriter. Incidentally, Noel strikes me in this film as somebody who went through the ringer and came out the other side. He looks very healthy and seems emotionally healthy. And after all that public drama, you know, I, I kind of have to hand it to him. And if you don't know what I'm referring to, just do some quick research on the band Oasis. So just one more thought involving Bob Lefsitz and his newsletter. Bob often includes playlists that he puts together on the internet. He does this whenever he's discussing a particular artist, especially when it's someone who's recently passed away and whom he's paying tribute to, such as Peter Green. He does these playlists on Spotify, of which he is a big proponent, and rather chummy with Spotify's founder, Daniel Eck, if I'm saying this name right. I don't have to tell you that this is a source of disagreement between him and many of his readers, myself included. However, these playlists are quite useful, and for our purposes, that's neither here nor there. So I was looking at Bob's Peter Green playlist, and I saw the expected tunes, the ones we talked about in episode three, such as the original Black Magic Woman, Green Man Alishi, Owell, Albatross, and so forth. So I was surprised to see a bunch of tracks on this playlist from 1979, mostly from this one album. First of all, I didn't even know he was active in 1979. I guess he was. But also, listening to it, I could see why so many of these songs made the playlist. It sounds good. No, it's not quite like the original stuff, but, you know, he's pretty close to form. I had to ask Dave Rubin about this album. The couple of albums he did in the late 70s. Um, oh, yeah, the one uh, In the Skies, I think. Is, yeah, now you... It's a great you, album. People may not know this. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not him. He's what? not playing the solos. I'm just going to hit pause for one moment. I'm compelled to quote from a television show I used to watch when I was growing up. What you talking about, Willis? It's this English guy named Snowy White. You're kidding me. Was a white blues guitar player in England. It's had, he has some some renown. He's playing, sounding like Peter Green, the old Peter Green. It's not Peter on those albums. How do you know I, that? I guess I'm letting something out here, but it's it's a little bit of research, and, and you know people talk about it on on online. Yeah, it's not him. So this strikes me as the work of a disingenuous record label who decided to slap Peter Green's name on this record where it, it should have just been on a band where his name was included, uh, which would have gotten plenty of attention. But they thought, oh, we'll do it as a Peter Green record. And you can't blame Peter Green. Remember, this is a guy, he did not want his name on the records, even with the Fleetwood Mac stuff, when his name should have been on the record. So, now that's in the late 70s with that up from the skies. And, uh, yeah, in the skies, uh, 1979, recorded yeah. in 1978. Right, so that's this, that's this guy Snowy White, who's a very good player, by the way. He's got, has his, had his own band and his own own recordings. Oh, that is fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah, and and that wasn't that definitely wasn't publicized when those records came out because I remember seeing them and I'm thinking, oh great, mm -hmm. Peter Green's making records again, you know? Oh wow, you know? And you listen to him and say, wow, he sounds pretty good. He 
sort of sounds like his old self. Well, yeah, it's somebody else sounding like his old self. Unbelievable. So you can't blame Snowy White, the guitarist, for this situation. It seems like he's had a long association with Peter Green and was just trying to help him get back out there. Interestingly, Snowy White is somebody kind of like the uh, guy I was talking about earlier from Nashville, Kenny Greenberg, who the, the pros all know about, but he's not that well known to the general public. For example, he was a backing guitarist on a tour supporting the album The Wall, the Pink Floyd The Wall, in 1980. Much later, he was called upon by Roger Waters to tour with the Roger Waters version of The Wall. He had a couple solo records, one of them charted in the UK with a single, and another record that he did in the 90s had a guest solo by none other than David Gilmour himself. I would say that if you can call up David Gilmour, have him come over and play a guest solo on your album, you have cred. Now here's another interesting fact about Snowy White. For two years, from 1980 to 1982, he was a member of Thin Lizzy, the band founded in Ireland that also included Gary Moore, who we discussed in episode three, and who was the owner for a long time of Peter Green's famous Les Paul. Now, Gary Moore and Snowy White weren't in Thin Lizzy at the same time, at least as far as I can tell. Thin Lizzy had many different lineups. Still, I find it fascinating how this all ties together. It's also interesting when you think about the fact that although Thin Lizzy's sound is more melodic hard rock, they are considered an influence on many metal bands, including Metallica. And of course, Kirk from Metallica owns that Les Paul that was owned by Gary Moore after it was owned by Peter Green and was used during his time in Thin Lizzy. It's also interesting to think about Snowy White's association with Thin Lizzy, since he was more associated with artists like Roger Waters, David Gilmore, and Peter Green. So a couple quick updates pertaining to this. While taping this episode, I got a phone message from Dave Hogarty, He's a friend and longtime journalist based in Florida. He's been with the Miami Herald and Jazz Is. He's also been a coordinator for musicians like Al Demiola and Doug Wimbish. And uh, he'll probably come on the podcast at some point. Anyway, he was letting me know how much he's enjoyed the podcast and had just listened to the Peter Green episode. And it reminded him that back in the 70s, the late 70s, he had this album called In the Skies. And he just loved it. It was one of his favorite albums. Until he found out everyone hated it. <laughs> For the reasons we are discussing. So clearly it's not that big a secret. It's not the Manhattan Project or Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Some people knew that the album In the Skies by Peter Green didn't have Peter Green playing the lead guitar. And if you think about the fact that somebody like Bob Lefsitz, whose Peter Green tribute in his newsletter elicited responses from the likes of Seymour Stein, Steve Lillywhite, and Bob Geldof, he didn't know. Well, okay, it's not a well-kept secret, but it's not exactly common knowledge either. Which brings us to our second current update. Uh, I happened to glance at Mr. Lefsitz's Spotify playlist for Peter Green just for reference while taping this episode, 
and he's modified it. <laughs> Every track from In the Skies is gone. In fact, all he has now is just the, the basics, the, the most well-known tracks. Somebody must have told him. Now, I do want to look at one cut off In the Skies. This is not one of the tracks with fiery blues playing that we now know is Snowy White doing his best impersonation of Peter Green. I believe this is actually played by Peter Green, and it's a song that's very somber, slow, moody, kind of in the spirit of Oh Well Part 2, which we talked about in the last episode. Now, you may recall that Oh Well Part 2 had certain qualities that I felt were a bit reminiscent of Metallica. Metallica obviously came much later, and I have no idea if they ever listened to early Fleetwood Mac, especially James Hetfield, the guitarist vocalist who is the main songwriter, along with drummer Lars Ulrich. I would love to ask him, James, come on the podcast. But seriously, if you listen to this track from um, In the Skies, it's called Apostle. I think uh, there's some of the same qualities that you find in Oh Well Part 2. And it also reminds me of Metallica in some ways. Now, I fully acknowledge this may just be me taking creative liberties and being fascinated with the fact that Peter Green's guitar basically found its way into the band. But let, let's take a quick listen. I'm going to just play a, a short clip of the song Apostle. Okay, I'm joining in at the end very respectfully because I'm going to demonstrate something for you right now. So that chord is at the 5th fret. Guitar players will recognize it as the same A minor voicing that's used in Stairway to Heaven. Now here's something really interesting. So he's taking the A minor, right, going to G, and then E. Now I may be totally on my own, out on a limb here, but I can't help but make this observation based on the mood of the song. Hey, the podcast is called Moods and Modes, right? What if we were to play those same chords in 3-4 time instead of 4-4? Four, four? So instead of 1-2-3-4, we'd get this. 1-2-3, 1-2-3-1. Right? And then the other two chords. Right? And then what if we took that in 3-4 and we just transposed it to E minor instead of A minor, we'd get this. See where I'm going with this? Does it remind you of something? I'm going to keep that clip really short. I love the band. Do not want to hear from their lawyers. So I think it is fair to say that there is a common mood between some of this more experimental Peter Green material that is rarely heard, if ever, on the radio, but that he was very passionate about. As I mentioned in episode three, 
it's, it was between Oh Well Part 1, which was one of their biggest hits, and Oh Well Part 2, which is more in the mood of this tune Apostle. He would pick Oh Well Part 2. <laughs> he loved that stuff. You know, this very dreamlike sound excursions, even though to listeners of his more accessible pop songs that reach the charts or his hardcore blues playing, uh, they might not relate to it as much. But I think we almost owe it to him because it meant a lot to him. And uh, when you compare it to some of these Metallica songs, even compositionally, although that may be totally coincidental, you know, it's, it sounds like there's a connection. And it's quite fitting given the story of Peter Green's guitar. Since we are at 50 minutes, this feels like a good time to wrap it up. All right, my friends, Peter Green lives. I hope you've learned something. I know I have, and I thank you for sharing the experience with me. And thank you, Peter Green. We will never forget you. I want to once again thank our guests across these two episodes, Dave Rubin, Andy Alladort, Mike Zito, and by permission from Dean Del Rey, Let There Be Talk, Kirk Hammett, and thank you, Dean, on episode three. We have done four episodes so far. I am so grateful for the response. I know it's different, and that seems to be resonating with people. So thank you. Thank you for spreading the word. Thank you for rating and subscribing and telling your friends. And special thanks to all our members of Patreon. You can join us at patreon.com slash alexskolnick. Moods and Modes is produced by yours truly. Our editor is yours truly. I'm getting a little better at this. We didn't have to be up all night quite as many times this time around. So, Anyway, it's totally worth it. You guys make it worth it. And um, all the music is by yours truly, except we're specified. We have a song by Mike Zito. And uh, here I'm joined by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Peck on the bass on some of the earlier tracks too where there's obviously drums and bass it's those guys all right that's it onward i'll see you guys on episode five thank you and be safe okay okay what the hell's going on out there All right, let's do this again. Hey listeners, 
I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry Kay, host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born, to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.